Returning real quick to that theme of pride, uh, you know, pride is by nature competitive. You know, we may think that we're proud of being successful or intelligent or good-looking, but what we're actually proud of is being more successful, more intelligent, more good-looking than others. Another way of saying it is pride um, gets no pleasure out of having something, only having that more than the next person. And that's a classic C.S. Lewis quote from the book I referenced earlier. It's true. You know, pride, pride runs on the comparison uh, game. Um, it, it, loves, it loves the ranking system. We're always wondering, always wondering how we stack up, um, how we measure up to the next person. Am I prettier than, smarter than, funnier than? And if I am, if I really am, then I want to be recognized as such. I don't know if you ever listened to Garrison Keillor's A Prairie Home Companion on NPR. I think they still run, do reruns of that, but you re- may remember Garrison Keillor admitting to something that we could all make the same admission. He said, quote, I am desperate to win all the little merit badges and trinkets of my profession. <laughs> and that, that's true. That's us. You know, I work harder than, I'm more creative than, I'm more thoughtful than, I'm, I'm more deep-thinking then and then we we love to take whatever badge and sew it onto our our vest. Why? It's because we crave we crave um, being recognized as success as successes. Um, we want to be known as uh, to have the verdict that we are something and we are somebody. Which is funny because um, Tim Keller points this out. You know the parts of our bodies, like the parts of our physical body. Um, that does, they don't call, it doesn't call attention to itself unless there's something wrong with that part of our body. You know, none of us walked into church this afternoon and said, Why, my toes are feeling really good today. <laughs> or my elbow, it works like a charm. You know, none of us arrived. We only talk about our, our knee or our toes or our elbows if it isn't working right. And in that same way, you know, the human ego has something incredibly wrong with it because the ego is always calling attention back to uh, itself. It's always drawing attention to itself, like how, how we look, how we are doing, how we're being treated. Um, when somebody says, oftentimes people will say, you know, my feelings were hurt, but really, really, like, how can feelings be hurt? You, you know, what really is going on is our ego is hurt. Our ego gets hurt a lot. You know, so pride is, yeah, it's competitive. It wants recognition. You may hear those descriptions and, and say, well, that's not really me, you know. Maybe you say, that's not really my problem. If anything, my problem is a problem of low self-esteem. Um, do you, and that's probably how a lot of us feel. You ever go into a social setting, uh, maybe a party, and everybody there seems so smart and so witty and so well-read, and, and everybody that's in there is... I don't know, they've got a great story to tell, or they ask brilliant, insightful questions. And then you, on the other hand, you just feel like so small, so out of place. You feel like, like one big loser in an in ignoramus. You feel miserable at the party because you feel so uncomfortable in your own sin, skin. And, you, you know, has anybody ever been filled with self-reproachful words like, I'm no good, I'm a bum, I'm a doofus? Well... If so, that's pride too. 
You know, we tend to associate pride with having an exalted view of ourselves, but there's also a type of pride that's the pride of the inferiority complex, where we just fixate on our own inadequacies. We're stuck in loops of self-condemning, self, um, self, self-condemning thoughts and speech. We rehearse and bemoan our own faults, our real faults, and even our imaginary faults. You know, the breakthrough for me, the absolute breakthrough came when I discovered this, that pride at its core is excessive self-conscious. You know, the proud self, the truly proud self, is the self that is constantly aware of itself. And as I said earlier, you know, Jesus Christ, our Savior, was probably the only truly humble man ever to walk the face of the earth. And so he would be the one to know um, how we can become more humble. And I think he has something for us in the passage that Ivan just read in Spanish that I'll now read um, in, in English from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. But before I do so, let's pray once again and ask for God's help. Our Father in heaven, you are the one who guides our paths. You are the one who restores our souls. And so we ask that you, uh, uh, the God who speaks, would speak to us now, Lord, and take this passage, take this sermon, and use it to um, break through our distracted minds so that we can become people who see ourselves in, in, a, in a healthier, um, more humble, more true light. And we pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. 1 Corinthians 3, 21 in English. So he's, if you're just stepping into this sermon series, we've, been, we've started out in 1 Corinthians. We've been here for a few weeks. The problems that this little church in the city of Greece, in Corinth, had was um, manifold, but they, it seems like they are, they're glomming on to different leaders and, and sort of you know, saying, that's my guy, or this is my guy, and they're using that as a way to gain one step up on the next, next person. And so Paul's in this, you know, extended discussion about how we, how we stop these divisions that are, are present. And he says, like, let no one boast in human leaders. Why? And here he has this hot, just 30,000 foot you know, beautiful promise to the Christians. He says, why? Because everything is already yours in Christ whether Paul or Apollos, two leaders, or Cephas, which was the name for Peter, and then he gets really big, or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come, everything is yours, and you belong to Christ, the Messiah, and the Messiah belongs to God. So how should we regard you know, Christian leaders, pastors, priests, whatever title they go by. He says, well, verse 1, chapter 4, a person should think of us in this way, as servants of Christ, of the Messiah, and as managers of the mystery of God. And for him, the mystery of God was the mystery that God would come in the flesh in, a Jew, in the form of a Jewish carpenter, and that, that his sacrificial death on the cross would be, um, and his resurrection of the dead would be the thing that opened up all possibilities. Um, so, yeah, servants of Christ, the managers of the mystery of God. In this regard, it is required that managers be found faithful. He's saying, you know, I need to faithfully speak this message of the gospel, but it is of little importance to me that uh, I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I am not conscious of anything against myself, but I am not justified by this. 
It is the Lord who judges me. And then he says this final word like to the church. So don't judge anything prematurely. That is before the Lord comes. Who will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the hearts. And then praise will come to each one from God. So quick wrap background before we uh, go any further. In Judaism and in Christianity, that both religions maintain uh, these things. Number one, that this is God's good and lovely world, that he created it. Number two, that the evil is real, it's not imaginary, and evil is a powerful, horrible intruder into this good and lovely world. And then three, sooner or later, God will and must put things to right, you know, through through a final judgment. I mean, to believe in judgment, I know that's not very fashionable, but really it's just an extension of, um, of the story of a, of a creator who made things and is present. I mean, believing that God is a good and wise creator who hates what has happened to this world, who hates how it, it has been devastated by human sin, um, and that he will bring his kingdom to earth, his just and true and righteous kingdom to earth as it is in heaven um, with the return of the Messiah. Okay, well, why bring that up right now? Well, the Christians in the city of Corinth, they seem to think that they are the judges. (laughs) And now that they um, have God's spirit and they think that they're full of God's wisdom, they also think that that sort of gives them the right to pass judgment on everybody else. I mean, they're, they're pretty tough critics. And in fact, they're, they're very critical of their founding pastor, Paul, who, uh, we've talked about this, how he, how he didn't measure up to the standards of what a good Christian leader ought to, to be. And um, so they're criticizing him, and yeah, they're very, they're very tough critics. Um, this past week, I had an opportunity to go to an art exhibit that was uh, downtown at Chico, and that was showing the art of five different um, ladies. I think it was like Mujeres de Mundo, like women of the world. And what was cool about it, in addition to the art, was getting to hear them interviewed. Each lady had five, uh, 10 minutes to be able to describe uh, what inspired their art and sort of their creative process. And, and I loved listening to that. I love to hear artists describe their creative process. And one of the descriptions that um, has stuck with me down through the years, you, have you ever heard of the Pulitzer Prize winning um, author Anne Lamott? Anne Lamott, she has this ritual before she writes. And what she does is she imagines all the voices that are inside of her head, all of those voices, both positive voices and negative voices, you know, that are constantly reciting their high expectations and their devastating criticisms of her writing. They're just all chirping up there. Um, She imagines them as almost as if they're like little mice. And so what she does before she begins to write anything is she picks up each individual mouse by the tail. And you know, I, I wonder how she actually does this, but, but she drops each little mouse into a big glass jar, she says. And then after they all have been deposited in the jar, she screws the lid on tight. And she said, it's almost as if I can see their little greedy faces, you know, pawing at the sides of the jar, squeaking away furiously. But because I put the lid on the jar, I can't hear them any longer. And then I I put the jar off to the side. And it's only then, only then, when those voices are stilled um, and moved out of sight, that she can find the freedom to focus on um, 
on the story that she, she, she's meant to write. And I wonder if she almost got that idea of all things from this passage, from the Apostle Paul, because they're very interesting parallels to what, uh, sort of how he deals with his critics and how he sort of sees um, himself and him doing his work as a church planter, her doing her work as an, an author, and, um, and how she, like, yeah, how she deals with the mice. Uh, who knows if that's, in, in fact, connected, but... Paul's response in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 to his critics shows us several things. First, I think we can find here a new and different way of seeing ourselves. We can also find perhaps a medicine to heal our pride, and then finally a pathway towards a healthier self-identity. How so? Well, let's go back to verse 3. What does he say in verse 3? Well, he says uh, simply that it is of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court. So here he is. He's returned back to the, the language, judge, courtroom judgment language. And he basically says, first of all, uh, I don't care how you, um, how you, what verdict you render. <laughs> I don't care what you think. I don't care. He's basically saying to this group of people, I'm not going to let the court of public opinion uh, decide how I feel about myself and how I feel about my work. Um, We talked about this over the last few weeks, how he was this substandard apostle because he didn't fit their idea of a teacher. He didn't use rhetoric, ancient Greco-Roman rhetorical um, means to gain a large following. Um, they, were, they were down on him, but he says, I don't care. I, I, I don't look to you Corinthians for my identity. And that's very important for us to hear because I think by, by parallel, we can't look to the court of public opinion. You can't let your heart be judged by what society says. Why? Well, I mean, for one reason, because the court of public opinion is always changing. It is always changing. I mean, I guarantee you that there are plenty of things 40 years from now, 60 years from now, uh, maybe even less time than that, things that everyone thinks today is bad that 40, 60, 80 years from now, everybody's going to say it's perfectly okay, you know, and then likewise, there are a lot of things people think are okay today, then a few decades time are going to be thought of as, as bad. I mean, what, we just go back to Jim Crow uh, in, the, in the mid-20th century, and, and we see just how many people thought something that was so bad was so right. I mean, even something more recent. I, I heard a pastor talking about this, how like in the 70s on college campuses, it was just, it was kind of assumed that it was all right for a, a college professor to sleep with one of uh, his or, or her students, that that was just, that was considered fine. Would that be considered fine today? No, I mean, no, that would be considered a, a tremendous abuse of power and authority. Or even darker still, you know, go back to 1930s, 1940s Germany. We like to imagine that if we lived in Germany at that time, like we wouldn't have followed the masses and their enthusiasm and, or, or complicity with a, a fascist regime. Um, but would we, would we have actively uh, opposed it? I mean, Nazism was not an alien political doctrine that appeared out of nowhere. It succeeded because, uh, according to one... Um, scholar, it succeeded because it embodied what people either believed then or wanted to believe. 
It was seductive precisely because it promised an immediate fix to all of their parliamentary gridlock, an end to their economic chaos. It refused to bow to the crushing indemnities and humiliating conditions imposed upon Germany by the Western powers. It, It just made a whole lot of sense. And yet it was so wrong, that court of public opinion. And so we got to always be warning ourselves of that danger. But there's another danger. When, when we say, I, I don't care what you believe, what you think. I only care what I think. <laughs> that ends up being another trap, right? It's the trap of our own personal opinion. Who cares what, what they say? I only care what I say. Well, if you say that, then you may be digging yourself an even um, deeper pit because, you know, sometimes you can be your own worst critic. Um, sometimes you, you have more demanding standards than others have for you. And, and other times, you yourselves are the, the deluded critic, and you can't actually analyze yourself properly, fairly. You know, it may sound liberating to say, who cares? All that matters is my opinion. But at the end of the day, actually, nobody can live that way. Um, nobody lives that way. We're, we're all chasing after the approval of someone, even when we don't realize it. We're chasing after somebody's approval. It might be our father's approval. It might be our, our father who's been long dead for, you know, decades. It might be our mother's approval. Um, no, we're all striving to have a positive external verdict. And where, where are we going to get that? Well, back to verse 3. So here, Paul, he departs from the view of the modern self. It's of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Then he goes on to say, in fact, I don't even judge myself. So in other words, he's, he's not going to the Corinthians for a verdict that he is a somebody. He doesn't get his identity from them, but he also doesn't get his identity from himself either. What he says What he says, in essence, is, I don't care what you think, and I also don't care what I think. (laughs) Uh, I I have a very low opinion of your opinion of me, and I have a very low opinion of my own opinion of me. That's how Keller put it. Look carefully at what he says in verse 4. He says, For I am um, not conscious of anything against myself, but I am not justified by this. He says, basically, when I analyze my work as a pastor, um, my conscience is clear. I, I think that I've done things the right way, but that makes no difference. It makes no difference that my conscience is clear, because there are plenty of consciences that are clear that shouldn't be. <laughs> there are plenty of people who have done terrible things, and they don't feel an ounce of regret about that, right? You know, Hitler himself let his conscience be his guide. War criminals Today, Putin, today, lets his conscience be his guide. Consciences can um, often be wrong. So when Paul says, my conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me justified, that does not make me innocent, um, it's a fairly amazing statement. He's saying, he assumes, he assumes that, that maybe his assessment of himself could be wrong. You know, that's something that most people normally don't assume. He assumes that he, maybe he can't see himself all that accurately. Maybe I don't see myself very well. And like today, that is, I don't hear hardly anybody saying that today. I mean, the idea of the modern self is is that simply, you know, I get to live the life that I choose, that I want, according to my terms entirely. And, And the only voice that matters is the voice of my own. And yet, 
That's a terrible, terrible standard to live by. Nobody can live by that. Nobody can live well. Every one of us has had the shocking experience of having to listen to our voice on a recording. Have you ever listened to yourself singing on a recording before? And and what is the first thing that comes out of your mouth once you hear yourself? You're like, is is that really how I sound? And the answer is yes. (laughs) That is how you sound. You you hear yourself differently than how everyone else hears you because you hear yourself from like the, the inside, so, so to speak. It's the same with photos. You, you take a look at yourself in a photo. Is that how I look? And the answer is yes, it is. Well, my mind was blown when I came across this idea the other day. And, and okay, I didn't put it up on the screen. Do you realize that a different version of you exists in the minds of everyone who knows you. I'll say it again. A different version of you exists in the minds of everyone who knows you. Different because they all differently interact with you. Different because of all the different ways they experience you. The, 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 the person you think of as yourself only exists for you. And you don't even know who that person is. And so when Paul says, I don't care what you think, but I don't even care what I think. Uh, he's really getting to the idea that uh, I, am, I am not a comp- competent judge of myself. He knows his own self-judgment is fallible. Well, then who, who does he care uh, about their opinion? Well, he says, all I care about is what God thinks of me. And that's where he goes in verse 4. He says those famous words, quote, It is the Lord who judges me. It's the Lord who judges me. Because if you think about it, if there really is a divine being who is uh, the creator of all things, who is separate from the creation, then that is the only one who truly knows, uh, who perfectly sees, and can make, you know, the perfect assessment of us. Only God can judge me. Um, is that good news? Yeah. If you think about it, there's lots of tattoos that you see out there with this theme. Only God can judge me. There's the praying hands. Only God, only God can judge me. For centuries, um, for centuries and centuries in Western civilization, you have this idea of uh, that sinners are in the hands of an angry God. You know, Jonathan Edwards, Puritan, New England. Um, everybody believed in God. Everybody knew that God was a judge, and everybody was afraid of them. Um, everybody was terrified, like, uh, he will judge me. There was no doubt that this God would judge me. Um, how will I ever pass the scrutiny of such a judge? That was one of the most prevalent questions um, of, you know, of, of, um, of the world for centuries. Today, when we say only God can judge me, we mean it in such a different sense, don't we? Like, it, it's basically a statement of human autonomy. Like, only God can judge me. I can, I can live however I want on my own terms in my way, and you can't say anything about it because it's just between me and God. And the reason, the real reason why that is comforting is because nobody actually believes that there is a God. <laughs> nobody believes there is a God who's going to truly judge me. Or if there is, he must be like some like grandfather softy up in heaven. Like, we just grossly overestimate our own goodness in his eyes. I would say both of those have it wrong. Both have it wrong. You know, that God is not this angry, bitter, vengeful God, and God is also not like this absentee, toothless fairy. 
No, God as my judge becomes good news. How? God as my judge becomes good news the minute you say, Lord, accept me because of what Christ has done. Um, Lord, accept me because of what Jesus has done. I mean, that was, that was everything for Paul. His life, his identity, his, his ministry, all of it was connected. All of it was connected to Jesus the Messiah. Um, that was his, the whole um, mystery that he was entrusted to be a steward of. He knew that our sin was so great, nothing less than the death of Jesus could save us. And God's love for us was so great that, that Jesus was glad to die and to save us. And that in essence, the most important verdict of every human being is, is rendered already at the cross. And so that's where Paul, that's kind of like where he's building this whole argument. He says, I'm not going to trust in people's applause. You know, your applause for me or your booze for me, that is not determinative of who I am. That's not my identity. Um, and I'm not going to um, rest on my own applause, self-applause, or self-criticism, you know. And no doubt, Paul, he could have made a very long list of both his sins and his accomplishments. Um, but for him, the only opinion that mattered, the only opinion that mattered was, was the verdict that it had already been rendered on his behalf through Jesus. It's the one he fully had by faith in Christ. Okay, so what, what would Paul say to a Christian who is struggling with their own sense of uh, inadequacy? I feel particularly prone to answer that kind of question because, you know, I mean, I've, I oftentimes struggle with my own sense of inadequacy and, and um, I'm my own worst critic, and, and, you know, all of that. You know that about me. Um, what he would say is, come on, the verdict is already in. <laughs> the verdict is in. The trial is over. So you can stop acting like you're still on trial. You can stop judging yourself with your relentlessly high criticisms. You know, stop, stop acting like you're performing all the time to win the applause of others. You have the applause that matters. You know, he loves you. He accepts you. At the end of chapter 3, he takes, he takes these Christians um, to this, I said, 30,000-foot height, where he says, like, look what you already have in Christ. You, you no longer belong to that old way of thinking where you have to work and work and perform to, to get the approval of others. You no longer have to, you no longer belong to that old way of boasting. You no longer belong even to yourself. You belong to Christ. You belong to Christ, and that is what's good news. The Lord is your shepherd. You shall not want, and that's what, that's what is good news. And so you can, you can just stop and realize um, how much he's done for you. Josh Cohen uh, wrote in uh, this article called The Perfectionist Trap, and it's something that we, we all tend to fall into. He said, you know, something about being human makes it difficult to feel that uh, we have done or are enough. We are unwilling to extinguish the hope that one day we will be recognized as, exep as exceptional. You realize just how much of this life is based upon you trying to win the verdict that you are enough, that you have done enough, that you are good enough, that you are uh, enough. And in Christianity, different from all the other religions of the world, it says that the verdict is already in. Um, so much so that you have, in Christ, you have the thunderous applause and approval 
of God, the wild applause of God. And it's like once you know that, once you can actually hear that, once you're living for that and and not living for the approval of of your father or your mother or your colleagues or or your parents or your husband or your wife, when you just know the acclaim and approval of God, then it seems like so much of the rest of life begins to fall into place. Let me see if I can finish the sermon by applying it in a few ways. You know, I've drawn really heavily on this little booklet that I recommend to you. I'll buy it for you if you'd like, but it's called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness by Tim Keller. And he basically argues that the virtue of humility is a byproduct of belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like in the gospel, we have a confidence that's not based on our performance, but is based on the love of God in Christ. And that frees us from always having to be looking at ourselves. I love this quote. He said, gospel humility is not needing to think about myself any longer, not needing to like connect everything with myself. It is an end to thoughts such as, you know, I'm in this room with these people. Uh, Does that make me look good? Uh, Do I want to be here? True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. And what happens, friends, what happens when you get that kind of of self-identity? Well, a few things. Number one, you know, I think that kind of identity, it heals our pride because our worth is not tied to our performance, good or bad. It is tethered to the unshakable Christ. And that really gives you a ballast, a steadiness um, in performance ups and downs. And, and we all know that in this life, there's just tons of fluctuation in our own performance. It's a steadiness. Number two, you're not nearly as apt to regularly, regularly experience crushing personal disappointments when others fail you, or as often happens, you fail yourself. Um, number three, the self-forgiveful person is not going to be devastated by the criticisms of others because we're no longer putting too much value on what other people think. I love this one. Number four, um, the author Brendan Manning, he shared what he sensed Jesus speaking to him years, uh, years ago about success, ambition, and failure. He said, um, somewhere you got the idea that I expected your story to be an unvarnished success story, but I expect more failure from you than you expect from yourself. And when you already have the approval of God, that's okay. It's liberatingly okay to fail. Number five, a truly gospel humble person is not self-hating or self-loving. They are self-forgetful, whose ego is like his or her toes. It just works. It doesn't draw attention to itself. It's just so freeing, friends, to no longer be obsessed with ourselves. And number six, what it means is then we can get out of the judgment seat. Uh, We can get out of the judgment seat and stop judging everyone and stop judging ourselves. We don't have to be, you know, the capital C-level critics of everyone and everything, including the person that looks at us in the mirror, not when we have the verdict in Christ. <clears throat> all right, that's about all I have. You know, maybe you're hearing this and you've never heard this before, and you're realizing that, you know, Christianity, that's Christianity. It's, it's different than what you um, were expecting. It, it's really not trying to be like working to be a a better person. It's really a whole new way of seeing yourself in Christ. Um, You'll never find 
you know, self-esteem by living up to a certain set of standards. But God has provided everything you need to live a life that is free from self-obsession, free from pride, and full of humility. He's given you everything you need already in his son, Jesus. Um, Amen.